Hello and welcome to Office Hours. If you're just seeing us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can also uh, put in the questions that become the producers of the show that drive the direction that we head to. Normally, we have a second hour that focuses on a specific topic, and on Saturdays, it's an education topic. Today, we're focusing on storytelling, uh, which has been happening uh, in eons for education, starting with why people have lost their homework. But uh, we can seamlessly see that transition about the midpoint of the of the uh, show today. In the meantime, we'll take your uh, virtual um, media and production questions, as well as general education questions. Mitchell, what do we want to know? Thank you, Josh. And here they come. Ronnie Hofsey from Tromso, Norway, asking, anyone know how to remote control an ECAM live with Companion? As I understand, Ecamm has a URL-based remote control API, and Stream Deck native app can talk to Ecamm. There's also a module and companion that does not work. All info is appreciated. So the Stream Deck native companion works really well, and I control most of the podcasting. I do when I actually use it mostly for recording rather than live by setting up my Stream Deck with the uh, scenes I want and then switching between them. And it's very efficient, very effective, very easy to use. When you jump to Companion, there is a, a configuration or a design for uh, Ecamm Live. But when I went to install it, there was only one button pre-confined. That button said mute on it. It didn't seem to work. So I've never made that work. But I also yesterday said I could never make Companion and Stream Deck software work together, and Jeffrey Power showed me how to do that. So I may be wrong, but I can tell you that the uh, the, the basic configuration works really well with the basic Stream Deck software. It's a very powerful tool, and it will allow you to fundamentally edit a show without actually having to look at the keyboard. Thank you, Nigel. Next question. Next one in from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Uh, Andy wants to know, how is the webcam quality on the new M2? Better than a Brio? And I suppose it depends on how new of an M2 that uh, Andy's referring to. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I'm not using an M2. I'm, I'm in an M1 Mac laptop, and I've got a camera from Elgato because it's a better camera. And it also has more controls for it. So I've, I've heard and even heard Rene Ritchie talk about how the cameras on the uh, laptops uh, will repaint your face and do corrections or try to improve your look, which for some people is a good thing. Um, but I think it's more important to be accurate with your camera. So if you're talking about an M2, I don't have one, but I didn't read anything about an improvement in the camera. They're all 1080s now. Uh, also, I don't think there's any new effects features like blurring the background better or any of that stuff. And also, if you're talking about the M2 Mini, well, the Mini doesn't have a camera, so you can't apply it there. It could be exactly as good as a Brio if you have the right camera. Uh, go to Let's go to Nigel. Yeah, I don't think they changed the camera between the MacBook, the M1, and the M2. I have the M1 MacBook. It's a vast improvement over previous MacBooks. So if you're living with a previous MacBook, the camera, which has, was said is 1080, is vastly superior. However, it's still a very small sensor and a very small lens. And it, uh, something like a Brio uh, will give you a, a much better experience. Yeah, one of the prerequisites to getting 
uh, 1080p in Zoom is to make sure your entire chain is 1080p. And that was not always a given on the Mac. I'm trying to think when the first one, was it with the M1s that they finally upgraded the Yeah, uh, the M1s the finally got the 1080, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing about the 1080 on the on the laptop screen, of course, is that it's very wide view, and it also has that follow thing that you can do. So it can be a problem if you're just trying to control what the frame is, which is what we do with our our webcams and the software that comes with them. Then you can improve the picture so much better. Okay, Jeffrey. The biggest thing to remember is any laptop camera is too close to the screen. So if you have, especially if you have a page that's all white, that's going to shine a light on your face. If I did that right now, you could actually see it from my screen. And then having that camera, it's just going to create a glow from there. The advantage of the Brio over the M2, the biggest advantage is that uh, it's got sensors in there for facial recognition. You can actually hook it up to a Windows machine and then turn on the biometrics for a Brio to unlock your computer with that uh, with that device, but you can't do it with the M2. So those biometrics that that sensor actually helps uh, with the clarity of uh, of your face and uh, being able to focus in. Whereas the M2 is just pretty much just going to go across the uh, across the way and and see and not care what's what's in focus. Yeah, it's a good point, Jeffrey. I believe that. Um... That is a Windows Hello feature with the infrared camera. Is there also a Mac uh, equivalent to um, with the camera? Yet? No, not to my knowledge. Okay. Well, as long as we're comparing um, webcams or built-in webcams, I will say that the notch on the M2s is much better than on the M1s. Let's go to our next question. Next one in from Buchhardt Friedrich in Easterberg, Germany. For an installation with six outs to six TVs, is the ATEM 1 ME your solution for supplying different content to those TVs, or better, a 12x12 Blackmagic video matrix? So when the uh, selection of going between a matrix or an ATEM, you'll want to look more at, um, sounds like more of the capacity, you'll look at some of the other extra features that you get with them. I believe the first gen does not have super source. Is that accurate with the, the, um, the one ME? So that might be part of the consideration. Let's go to our next question. Next one in from Jeffrey Powers here on our panel and from Madison, Wisconsin. I need, need to fix some pixelated video and reshooting is not an option. What is the best video AI tool out there for this? Is there an open source alternative? Well, we'll have Sky and Mitchell battle this one out. Well, I've been using the uh, Resolve, and again, it's kind of free, and it's but it's not AI, but it is magic, and it from Blackmagic anyway. But the the tools to sharpen your image often it works on the contrast of the lights and the darks. So it helps it bring in things into focus. So I don't know if that will help your pixelated challenge. I've I've been seeing, I've been abused by some uh, advertising on Facebook that there is a tool out there that will sharpen your video. And if you want to take a small image or an old image and, and make it more crisp, but I couldn't find it. So Jeffrey, I'll, I'll reach out to you and I'll come back to you on that. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, if the onboard uh, cleaner upper or whatever you want to call it uh, in Premiere or Final Cut or Resolve doesn't work, um, I usually take it out to uh, After Effects. And then there's a ton of plugins that can address this. 
Um, Boris, in fact, uh, has quite a few uh, that you can use to uh, to apply. Uh, it's in the Boris Continuum Complete. Uh, and also, uh, the folks at Red Giant, now um, Maxon, have a number of different plugins for doing the same thing. And I just saw that Topaz is an AI-based uh, uh, system. Topaz, uh, you probably remember them mostly for still photos, now doing video-related stuff. Yeah, I saw them uh, on sale on Black Friday. I was tempted, but didn't pull the trigger. Um, Da Vinci does come close, but I think Topaz is a little better in that regard. Good, Jeffrey. Yeah, the biggest problem with doing that upscaling, I, I, I already uh, uh, installed the test uh, uh, Topaz, uh, their Enhance AI for uh, for a test. And the biggest problem that uh, comes up with upscaling is when it comes to text, it, it kind of looks like I made it in mid-journey. The text is all messed up because it just doesn't have a good set of lines. If it's nice, bold text, uh, it came out enhanced, but anything smaller just looks like a whole bunch of, somebody just drew a whole bunch of squiggles on the uh, on the screen. So um, so I'm, I'm, you know, that's where I was going for. The Topaz is 249, but there's some that are like monthly fees that uh that might work a little bit better but uh yeah that was that's where i'm trying to figure out the best solution because the client really wants those videos up there and and it's not not my favorite thing to do but i can't reshoot the videos unfortunately sky would you like to weigh back in yeah i found uh yes topaz was the one that i've been getting the ads for so they're very good at their marketing but historically the other software is called neat n-e-a-t video and that has been uh around a long time and does a tremendous job and has a long history mitchell yeah confirming that text um really gets messed up because text has a very specific anti-aliasing already at, uh, associated with it and when you um, when you go and add anything to it, it's going to fight it. The only thing, other thing I would recommend, Jeffrey, is maybe power windows and try to stay away from the text to uh, give it some adjustment. That would be the uh, only solution I have. Yeah, it seems like AI has trouble with that. Let's go to our next question. From John Foltz in Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania, home of Silesianum. Um, I uploaded Syracuse, whatever, one of those places, sorry. I uploaded video and audio content to Descript.io and got a text transcript synced to my content. Using text, I pulled fast paper edit. Then I exported the timeline as an EDL to open in Final Cut or Premiere. It was a mic drop moment. Go, Dave. This work uh, flow is really, really interesting in the sense that it simplifies it to the way our brain kind of works. People learn to edit by becoming visual oriented and they learn to learn timing and pacing and all the other things. But when you're just working with the content itself and just the transcript of the text, you're more organized. You get it all figured out beforehand and then let the machine do the work. Now you're going to go in later after your edit and make adjustments and timing bits and maybe color corrections and all those other things. But you get to that detail stuff quicker by having a text edit. Now, I'm a guy who comes from way back when I did paper edits and you had quad quadruplex players and you had three of them and you had to time them all so they all hit the switcher at the same time in sync. And then you had paper edit numbers and you had ream and ream of paper with all the numbers, the time code numbers of each of the shots. 
And in that sense, you had to be well organized before you got to use the big machines and the more expensive time in a, in a studio. Um, I think this is a very interesting thing. Descript.io looks like they're on the front end of something. There may be other advances that they add to things like Resolve or Final Cut or others where they actually offer you a chance to take transcripts off the timeline, put them back on again, and use text on another track to, to do your edits with. I think it's really interesting. I, I, th I think you're right. Once you try one of these things, and it is a mic drop moment, for regular cutting, maybe just news cutting and all that, it's going to make it much faster. Uh, but also, uh, you're still going to have to do a little work after you've done your text cut. So there may be a new thing going on here, but it's kind of like reclaiming an old way of doing things with help from the computer. I'll jump in because my name's next. Josh has stepped away. Oh, there, Josh is back. I'll step in. And so I have used, uh, yes, and to the, the point of a paper edit is has been traditionally the executive staff that doesn't want to come into the edit suite. And so you will put out a text transcript, which used to cost a dollar a minute at least to get that to happen. So to have AI do it for you and those services that then became available in AI and on the web and got down to a penny a minute. Well, just a week ago, I discovered that inside of Premiere, it will take my sequence and transcribe it inside. And now it's searchable inside of my own nonlinear editing system. So I haven't done the uh, create an entire edit from that, but I've, I'm starting to see that. It kind of makes sense that that would happen and go find the video and put that into uh, a sequence. Of course, then you always get the uh, executive finishing with a sentence and making the edit on, on an upcut. And those are tricky and sometimes people don't care because they just, from a legal point, need that person to say that thing. So it's not aesthetically not pleasing, but it's uh, verbally accurate. So these are the challenges you have. I'm looking forward to uh, exploring this, this new tool. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, how far off is machine learning for video switching controls? Zoom will be releasing Intelligent Director for Zoom Rooms, and I wonder if this could lead to more professional applications. Go ahead, Dave. Well, this again is one of those things where it's emerging that we're going to embed a lot of intelligence into the processes we're using and make it a sort of hands-off uh, situation. Uh, we're already switching in Zoom to cue by audio, and if uh, switching can be done with um, cutaways of people smiling, laughing, or responding, then I think it's machine learning that's going to do that. Uh, if every time Shai Gleason, this guy here, uh, puts up a you know a fist of uh, uh, affirmation of what someone's saying or a thumbs up, well then we we would get to see that because it's a little quicker than a, an a vision mixer pushing the right buttons. Uh, also, special effects. Uh, if you get to switching control, you got to take into account mix effects. And those kind of things are a little tricky because they're a creative process and the pacing and timing of those is also important to a good storytelling and video. 
Uh, for Zoom calls, yeah. Uh, right now, I think Zoom is working real hard. And I think from what Andy was telling us last visit he had, that uh, they're working on getting a more anticipatory cut that uh, maybe in some way they'll hear us take a breath or come off mute and then it'll switch to us. So we'll see improvement for sure, but I don't know if we'll get to full switching control anytime soon. Mitchell? Yes, it's going to be year of the AI 2023. Mark that on your calendar. It's going to be happening and it's also going to be the year I'm retiring. Jeffrey? There are other big issues that need to be uh, resolved before uh, a good directive AI can be really implemented. Uh, it, you see AI already happening in Zoom. So the second that I started talking, the automatic switching uh, screen happened. And so it came to me. So if somebody like Josh was to talk right now, it'd flip back to him, flip back to me. Uh, now, see, if there's a big thing called latency. And I see it every day because I talk to somebody that's overseas and they get they get the conversation probably a second after I've I've talked to them. So we have that, you know, like the same thing, like with that satellite feed, you get that big wait until they start talking again, until that latency gets down to a specific point, then the direction can actually come in. But the other part is the hardware that you're bringing in. If you've got a computer that's underperforming, trying to come into something like even this uh, this type of room is going to take a little while for uh, things to start switching back and forth. And that's going to confuse any type of system that's doing any type of automatic switching back and forth. So once the hardware, I'd say at least five years for some of the hardware to catch up. And then, of course, people upgrading to that hardware and then the ability to have good audio, good video to do the types of switching that they're looking for. Um, other than that, we do have some AI that is running, as I said before. vMix, uh, a perfect example, they have a piece of software that uh, it basically will switch back and forth when somebody talks into the microphone. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I don't suspect it will necessarily open the door to more professional applications. The purpose of features like this is to um, enable novices to have... Um, almost prosumer capability. And so if anything, it's going to remove that middle layer of people who are better at it than your average Joes, but not yet that professional level. Dave? Well, I'm only hoping that it can correct for headroom on some of these following cameras, because that would be a learning I want the machine to do. Let's go to our next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asked, what's the most acceptable way, acceptable way to shorten a URL in a question for office hours? What do you think, Mitchell? A tiny URL is uh, the go-to for me. John? Don't underestimate your ability to scan a URL for excess JavaScript or um, variables and that sort of thing. You can usually find out where... Um, you added extra stuff there and delete that out and shorten your own URL. Jeffrey? The biggest problem with short URLs is that you could put in a code, whether it be malicious or whether it be, you know, uh, like for instance, an Amazon code, uh, Amazon code, so you could actually be making money off the link when people are clicking on it. So a lot of these shorteners uh, here uh, in office hours have been uh, denied or banned from uh, being on. In fact, if you try that, you'll you'll probably get uh, you'll get kicked back to take that out from there, unless that's changed. 
But uh, yeah, the best way to do it is just to put the actual organic link in there and uh, see what happens. Yeah, I realize that that does shorten your available question time. So just look for smaller products to provide links for, and it should help you out. Let's go to our next question. Ike Potter from Hanover, Germany, asking, is it somehow possible to send the individual 13 screens of the multi-view of the A10 Mini Extreme ISO simultaneously and individually to different monitor screens? Go ahead, Jesse. Uh, short answer, no. You've got four outputs with your ATEM Mini Extreme ISO. Two of those are USB-C. Two of those are HDMI. The HDMIs you can set to whatever you want in software, in the ATEM software controller. And the USB-Cs are going to be your program, whether you send that to your computer or to an SSD for recording. Go ahead, Mitchell. Jesse is 100% correct. Yeah, I think you gentlemen are correct because I think that um, Ike has the HDMI variant of the ISO Extreme, although I believe the SDI version has a couple of extra inputs that are individually configurable to, I believe, whatever you want. So four total uh, video outputs, if I'm not mistaken. Let's go to your next question. From Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks, for those ordering the new MacBook Pros, have you selected the M2 Pro or M2 Max? What will be the advantages of the Max? Go ahead, Nigel. I think there are two advantages to the Max. One is the amount of memory, 16 to 32, and the other is the number of graphics cores, which I believe if you max out your Max, you can get to 38, which is double the 19. Um, basically, this is about memory, and really it's about graphics cores. So if you have software that can really use the graphics engines, then there may be some advantage. But you're really going to need to be pushing things to see a huge difference. If you are doing a large amount of graphics-intensive stuff over long renders and stuff, you'll get there. Otherwise, for most uses, you won't. Go ahead, Dave. I'm not in the M2 yet, but uh, my M1 Max was chosen because it has on the chip those extra uh, ProRes processors um, and the special media processing for H.264. So because I'm a video editor, uh, I went for that. But that's, that's a specific thing for a specific job. Let's go to our next question. Mark Giuliani from Washington, D.C., and right here in our panel. There are a number of different roles mic switches. I have the MS-112 push to talk, and I'm not using it because it clicks when using it. Do all the models have buttons that click? Mark, you want to explain well, a little more? Yeah, just a little bit more. There seems to be an MM-11, an MS-111, and an MS-112, and the 112 is the one I chose. And it just seems to have a, a very loud click when you press the switch to mute or to unmute. And I just wanted to hear what some of the panels might think. Mitchell. Seems to be an issue of technique on pressing that button. I, Bill has a very specific technique that he uses when he's using his. Um, other people have different solutions uh, with hardware mute devices. Um, mine is uh, a electronic uh, switch, so it doesn't really qualify for your question. But um, I think you'll find that technique will uh, allow the click to be uh, disappeared. Or a foot pedal. There's some foot pedal versions. You can use your foot to do it. Tony? Oh, I'm using the 111. And I don't know if you guys heard me click it or not. Um, it was not a, a loud sound for me. I'm going to click it off now 
And you guys let me know if you hear that. But it, you know, it it is, I hear it as a loud noise, but if you guys are not hearing it, I'm ab- absolutely fine with it. And this is my first time using it. So I'm pretty happy with it. Tony, the only thing I heard was the rustle of your shirt as you uh, went over to push the button. Yeah, Very cool. Seemed to be a good, good task, Tony. Dave? Yeah, I'm using the MS-111 um, push to talk, and uh, I configured it. So I pushed down to be able to talk and leave it up for not talking. And I don't think anybody's ever heard me do it. I also took advice from Bill when he was talking about it. I took it apart and uh, stuffed it so that it muted the clang. Uh, The third thing I did was to locate it far away from the mic. Uh, I have it almost at arm's length away from the mic. So that way the click is not at the mic or under the mic. And also it uh, keeps my desk a little more clear. I like that it has LRF support so that, you know, you're able to keep it quiet on a table. LRF support is little rubber feet, just so you know. (laughs) <laughs> I forgot about that little hack that um, Bill used for his roles. Thanks for remembering that. Dave, let's go to our next question. And it's uh, coming in for me, and I'm asking, any problems with the new Ventura 13.2? Nigel? I have 13.2 on my studio. I have 13.1 on my Mac Mini, and I even have the beta on a MacBook, and I am not having problems with most of them, but I'm not doing anything terribly crazy. The craziest thing I use is Dante, and Dante seems to be working fine. Jesse? I am still having trouble connecting Master Raws from an ATEM ISO live switch to the Resolve project, but that's pretty deep considering if you're asking about Ventura. And what, what again was that specific error, Jesse? Didn't quite catch the details. Oh, it's it's not a Ventura era. It's error. It's that um, DaVinci Resolve will not reconnect Master Raws in a live switch done on an ATEM ISO. Okay, I believe you'd submitted a question yes. about that, and right? It's, okay. it's only in Ventura when I go back to um, to other OSs or version 17 of Resolve. It's only in 18, but it, it is an incompatibility between uh, DaVinci Resolve 18 and Ventura that still exists. Have you found a workaround for that particular bug? Install 17. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, Go ahead, Dave. Well, I have the practice of making sure that all my software that I rely on is updated before I update the system. And I usually wait a week or so, and then when the new issue comes out, either a version 0.1 or a 0.2, I wait for a lot of my little utilities that I rely on and even my... uh, electron apps to update or change and then they accommodate that little bit of a change sometimes the changes are huge and sometimes they're not but in ventura all the changes have been very minor or security oriented the YubiKey key thing uh, being one of the things recently and so i haven't had anything crash on me i haven't had anything uh, complain um, i think i had one electron app that took a little longer to load uh, just after i did an update but since then, it's been running just fine. So it may be that you can look at the software you're using if you're having trouble. But if you're not, I can report that it's doing very well for me. Tony, what's been your experience? So I'm using it on an M1 Mac Mini. And I'm using it on a M1 Pro 14-inch 
MacBook Pro and I'm having no issues whatsoever with it. All right. Thanks for that. Tony Mitchell. I had a little bit of a problem uh, when I did the update last night with uh, the Sony Edge application. They have these uh, applications, Imaging Edge Desktop, and then they have another thing called Remote. And it was getting a little cranky with that, but it, it eventually went away after I restarted a few times. Okay. Let's go to our next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, asking, do panelists have a use for Michael Forrest's great video pencil in their production projects? Nigel? I actually have a use for it in day-to-day -day use. I used it yesterday. My, my background isn't really very uh, useful for in its basic format, so I tend to drop in a super source that moves me to the top right and puts a blank screen on, and then I draw on it. So I was having a conversation yesterday with somebody about some strategy work we want to do, and the way I particularly wanted us to, to think about drawing out it and it was just really easy to get the pencil out and draw on the screen you know a couple of axes and some arrows and stuff and we were able to use that to have a complicated idea of how to represent something that i quickly uh, could draw out so that's that's generally the use i'm not using in podcasting and stuff yet but i do use it every day in conversations to try and draw out and explain something yeah, so if you want to look at our daily email, you'll see that there's also a lab that's been offered to use some of these tools. Check the email for more details. Let's go to our next question, Mitchell. And I've got another one. Um, I just uh, had someone offer Twilight Editing Services. <laughs> is that what I think it is? Go ahead, Dave. Okay, I'll bite. Well, we used to talk about uh, Twilight car parts, uh, where somebody would just, you know, strip a car and sell the parts. So I don't know if somebody's sort of doing something nefarious or not, but uh, other than editing shots of Twilight, I don't know what they're offering. Go ahead, Jesse. Um, Twilight, Twilight editing is, is think of it like an extension of da what dailies used to be in the age of film. You hand in your footage and then when you wake up the next morning, something has been done to it. Um, these are just editors who work overnight instead of during the day and it's for rapid turnarounds. You charge, uh, you charge us, uh, you, you add a surcharge in for that if they need that rapid a turnaround. And for the clients who pay it, it's very, very much worth it. And for those who don't, it is absolutely not worth that surcharge. Thank you. Uh, oh, thank you for that. that. Yes, that, that makes that's, sense. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Good, Mitchell. Uh, vampire jokes aside, I, I think Jesse's got it nailed. Uh, people working late at night. And guess what? I do things like that. I don't call it uh, twilight editing because uh, there's probably an intellectual property violation with the uh, the movie series. But I like the idea of being able to hand something in and sleeping. And there it is in the morning waiting for me. Sky? Well, and now with the, the global workforce, things that are going into the cloud, there are people that are awake somewhere in the world at 24-7. So consequently, we're, we're seeing a lot of this offset uh, workload happening globally. So there's, there's a concept, but I'm, I'm glad it was or clarified what, uh, what that is. Jesse. And also think about it from the perspective of an editing house. Uh, as your demand increases, 
you're, you're going to have to increase supply. And you could do that by uh, increasing the, num- the, the number of computers you have working simultaneously, or you could run your computers 24 hours a day with, you know, on 8 to 12 hour shifts, shifts during the day and then 8 to 12 hour shifts at night. So it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Henry Ford's model of editing. Dave? After learning what it is we're talking about, I realized that when we were doing the IBC coverage and editing before live, we were taking advantage of that, that we in North America were awake while Europe was asleep and Australia was awake when North America was asleep and we were able to edit offline all the way around the globe and then have everything ready for the next morning. I'll forgo any of the jokes. We'll go to the next question. Oh, yeah. Um, Next question from Douglas Carmichael uh, asking if I wanted to attach a USB-C SSD to my forthcoming M2 Pro Mac Mini, would it be best to use one of the USB ports? I'd want to conserve the Thunderbolt ports for Thunderbolt services. Go ahead, Mark. So you can do that, but the USB-A ports that are off to the side are at 5 gigabits a second. The four ports that you get with the Pro can be Thunderbolt 4, USB 4 at 40 gigabits a second, USB 3.1 at 10 gigabits a second. So it really is going to depend on the speed of the drives you're using. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, uh, Douglas, I'd buy a, a USB Thunderbolt uh, extension from OWC, and that would increase the number of uh, Thunderbolt ports you have because you really don't want to be putting any drives on a regular USB unless you're using it for a bit bucket. Let's go to our next question. Next one in from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. I had issues with ATEM freezing this morning after it had been turned off all night. I thought this was an issue of using the ATEM for long periods of time. Go ahead, John. Yeah, we have thought that it was an issue for being long periods of time. I also had the same issue this morning, Tony, so you're not alone. I'm not sure if there was some Zoom update or something, but mine was when I turned on original sound. It froze my ATEM. Mitchell? Well, the uh, the fantastic ATEM gray effect, when uh, the ATEM sends only gray, um, is sometimes blamed for many things. But it always seems to show up when you're doing exactly what you did, having the machine on and then turning it off and then turning it on again. Um, Alex has mentioned that some kind of bit is being set somewhere in the UBC protocol to the USB communication, thus causing the problem. Next question. Next one in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Music is now being generated from text, much like ChatGPT operates. How will this impact the music industry? Go ahead, Jesse. Um, I'm going to push back a little bit on the first sentence. I don't think that this is behaving in in any way similar to how uh, ChatGPT behaves. I think what we're looking at here is a random seed generated, uh, a random seed music generator. So what it has is thousands of samples, each tagged with different information about what that sample kind of sounds like. So when you type in reggae, it will randomly pull uh, samples from the reggae subset. Uh, there's a lot of different kinds of, of AI being developed right now, uh, machine learning and diffusion. Um, and it seems very frequent that people are uh, reselling uh, uh, random seed generated material as AI generated. To get to the question, um, 
Music fulfills a biological need. Now, there's the music we have in the background that we don't really care about or pay for. That's the, you know, the radio at work or the Spotify playlist that you have while you're doing other things. But the music that we actually care about, the music that fulfills that biological need is the stuff that we will never stop paying for because um, we're, we're paying for the interaction, not just with the artist, but with the community. So as AI music becomes more prevalent, I don't think it's possible for it to, to replace that biological need to build and sustain a community. Uh, so I'm, I'm not too worried. Yeah, Jeffrey? Music has been in the AI, AI has been in music for a lot longer than you might think. Um, and there are programs out there that have been around for years that have done something similar. And then, of course, starting to utilize the AI term out of it. Uh, one program I can think of uh, uh, is Ban in a Box, which is a piece of software that uh, you can get a whole bunch of different uh, versions or di uh, different genres of music and then input it and say, I want, I want it to do this chord progression or I want you to create your own chord progression, put in the notes, put in the melodies uh, so you can uh, tweak it from there. But uh, even, even with post-production, AI has been part of the music industry, taking out uh, all the uh, fragments or, or and, and enhancing, uh, enhancing vocals or, or anything like that. So I think uh, music's really embracing AI in many different ways. Uh, so I think this is just going to be an added level of that. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of people that will scrutinize it and say, okay, this is AI, this is not AI, so I will not listen to that or I will listen to that. Mitchell? Well, um, if it starts uh, borrowing samples for music like um, Midjourney does uh, video or stills from uh, still or stock li uh, libraries, I think there's going to be a problem because the record companies will have you surrounded uh, with their lawyers inside uh, a microsecond because they're out there looking for people for uh, borrowing samples. So if they borrow a sample, intentionally or not so intentionally, um, they're going to be in for a uh, big battle. And John? I don't think it's going to be, that battle is going to be won by the music industry because it's not copying samples, it's learning from influences. And I think all we need is a few court cases to establish a precedent that says that. Um, how it will affect the industry in general is I don't think it'll affect what we think of as the music industry that I listen to on Apple Music or Spotify. Where it will impact it is on YouTube, when you see you have eight songs to choose from, you can create your own stock music uh, that will be totally custom to you and something that you get a voice into how it sounds. Jesse? Uh, Jeffrey, as you were talking about um, techno uh, AI being a part of the music industry, I just thought, depending on how broad your definition of AI is, you could include a noise gate as an AI tool set. Well put. Mitchell? On a completely different point uh, against uh, AI, at least at this point in time, is uh, the fact that computer-generated music um, is, is, does not breathe and feel like uh, human-generated music. And until they kind of build those things into it, if you're quantizing uh, beats and doing things that make it very predictable, um, it's not going to have that breath in it like it, uh, like a live band playing together uh, where the drummer may go a little ahead or a little behind or whatever for emphasis. Those are the things that concerns me. Go ahead, Scott. 
I just want to see if if Dave's available because I'd like to take Mitch down to the beach because I'm going to see him. I want to see this happen, Mitch. I want to see you stop the tide. I just want to watch. I just want to be there. If I take my shirt off, it'll stop the tide. <laughs> Jeffrey? Mitch, to your point, quantization is actually happening in many different ways. You can you can even quantize, quantize I can't say the word, on uh, GarageBand on your Mac. And, uh, and it does a great job. And that's how a lot of people will do post-processing is to uh, make sure that the, the bass drum is always on that right beat or maybe slightly behind if they're playing some some jazz or blues or anything like that so a lot of that is already happening mitchell it is indeed and i just don't like it so i guess that's my opinion then (laughs) and dave well i'll weigh in here with the emotional layer i think jesse has it right that we connect to music like we would to other people speaking to us or facial recognition and all that other stuff our brain does. The pattern recognition process and the anticipation of the next note is not something that can be replicated outside of the human experience. And I, and I think that's true for chat GPT, just writing text or creating code or whatever. It doesn't have any passion or emotion to it. And as to Mitchell saying, you know, the breath of it, the pace of it, the, uh, the, the off, rhythm elements, the things that make music unique, and that people innovate in music all the time. And I'm not sure I've seen any innovation going on in any of these AIs. Well, thank you, panel, for that discussion. We had a little bit uh, more time uh, because of the amount of questions that we have to the top of the hour to to delve into that one a little bit. However, uh, if you'd like to enter one or two uh, questions of a general media nature or a general educational nature before we go into the education topic, storytelling, feel free to submit them. Let's go to our next question. From Douglas Carmichael, I've been looking at a Stream Deck and I'm deciding between the Stream Deck XL or a Stream Deck Plus with knobs on it. Can I use companion or similar to send MIDI data from the rotary encoders? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Well, Stream Deck Plus uh, was in, in integrated into Stream Deck uh, and Companion, uh, well, actually Companion 2.4.0. So you can use the uh, Companion Plus as for, and of course it does do MIDI, but the, the problem is if the dials uh, work or not. And that really re- relies on the people that are maintaining the uh add-ons to companion not companion themselves because they've got it so if you want to implement those dials however you however you decide then you just have to write it in the code so basically that's what we're waiting for is the uh, third-party companies uh like black magic like uh anything that's writing mini admitty stuff to utilize the uh, dials Yeah, and while I don't usually advocate for waiting for things to come out or firmware upgrades or improvements, I will say that the Stream Deck and its original uh, iterations was not nearly as uh, useful as it is in its later iterations as the Stream Deck software itself and other companies have been able to utilize that. So I would say that those rotary controls will be more useful tomorrow than they are today. Let's go to our next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia, asking, what else besides my new MacBook Pro do I need for a mobile setup in a hotel? Nigel? 
So I think two questions. Uh, question number one is, how are you getting there? And number two is, what do you want to do when you're there? So if you're getting there by aeroplane, then I assume you've got a certain limit on the amount of luggage. So if I'm flying, I tend to take my Brio webcam, I take a little USB adapter that allows me to connect a pile microphone and some headphones. And I can pretty much do office hours that way for instance, if that's the application. Although I think if you could throw some light in, depending on the hotel room, uh, that will be much better. Uh, I'm actually going to a super secret location for a few weeks uh, later in the year, and I'm trying to work out, because we're going to drive, is there a slightly better solution? So I've been playing one of, one of these Roland UV2s, which uh, should allow me to take a better microphone. It should be allow me to take a camera, whether I take my Black Magic or I use something else, and, and really sort of do a mini ATEM mini type solution. It seems to work quite well. Um, it doesn't have what my Mix Pre 3 has in terms of noise cancellation. It has some control of that. But of course, I'm driving, so I could take the Mix Pre 3 as well. But I'm trying to find a, a simpler, smaller setup and see if it's good enough. And that's what I'm thinking of because I'm going to be away for about a month. And Nigel, um, how do you find that mute function? Is there a mute button there, there on the control? There is a mute button. Right in the center, there's a mute button, and there are three different ways you can do it. You can mute. You can mute, you know, press it to talk, you can press it to mute, or you can toggle it. I actually uh, found that quite hard to use and not very useful, um, but I really early on. The other thing I noticed, I installed it on the machine that I normally use for Zoom, and it really took control of everything. So I was trying to switch back between this and my regular setup and found that I actually had to sort of unplug one to use the other. But it's really easy to install. It's the the uh, the routing is not super simple, but it's not as complex as something like a Mix Pre 3 or some more device. But you, you do get to sort of what do you want to send to what. But I've yet to uh, put a camera in it because what I really want to use is, um, you know, the HDMI link. So I can either, I need to take my uh, Black Magic or think of another solution for that. Mitchell? Nigel, plus one on that, because I think that Roland UVC is a game changer uh, for folks using it. Uh, a couple of things it doesn't do that your ATEM does. It doesn't crush the blacks on the output, and it doesn't send ATEM gray. It's a metallic metal-made device that's very substantial. I don't have one. I'm getting one. Uh, uh, Tony, I think that's the way to go, only if you have a camera that can output HDMI. Otherwise, if you're using your uh, iPhone 13, which I think you're using right now, um, your uh, MacBook Pro and a decent microphone that you can uh, take with you for traveling would probably do the trick. Jeffrey, what would you do? So, first of all, this is my this is my extra gear setup for when I go to a hotel. I'll show you what's in there in a second. Because the first thing that I would say is take bring get yourself a Mac Mini and then take that with you. It's actually a very lightweight to put into a backpack. And the best part about that is you can start doing a lot of stuff on your MacBook. You can connect via your MacBook Pro and, uh, and then do whatever you need to do. And then you can disconnect from that MacBook Pro to watch a movie while, there's, while your Mac Mini is actually doing all the work or anything like that. I've got a capture device, USB-C capture device. I think this one's from ATEN, A-T-E-N. Uh, and they make some uh, capture devices as well. And then I've got, uh, for an extra camera, I'll, I'll, I'll have my Brio or something like that, but I have this. This is the Mevo Start. 1080p, does a decent job, plus it does NDI. 
And to get NDI into the MacBook, you get something like this. This is the GLI net. Now they have a Wi-Fi 6 version of this, but this is the Slate 7. So this is basically a, a, a router that can connect up wirelessly to the hotel Wi-Fi. And then you can uh, address your own IP addresses. You've got, uh, you've got support. You've got uh, protection through this. However, you have this set up. You can, run, you can run this as a router. You can run this as a repeater. And there's many different functionality to that. Uh, so these are the main things that you can do that will give you multifunctional uh, ability and, uh, and to wherever you go. And then, of course, always, always bring a mouse because you never know when you just uh, aren't close enough to the computer to actually work the uh, trackpad. Uh, Dr. Clark? I have some low-tech suggestions, Tony. Um, one is to uh, bring uh, two or three light bulbs of the of the uh, wavelength that is flattering to you. Um, often, uh, I understand that the uh, lights lighting in the hotel rooms are not of those uh, softer frequencies. So uh, that might be an easy way to uh, enhance the lighting available. Um, and another low-tech possibility is a piece of cheesecloth that could be used as a kind of a filter for the lighting that is available. That's all I have to offer. Good suggestions. Tony? So there are there are two trips planned this this year. One is air travel. One is by vehicle. And I, I'm just asking that you guys just share the links of the information that you've shared with me. Thank you so much. Good, Mark. Well, I've heard a lot of great suggestions, Tony. I would bring with you some power strips because it seems like the outlets and hotels are never where you want them to be. And Jeffrey. Power strips are great. If you're traveling via air, the best, the one thing that I highly recommend is to map out where your Walgreens, where your CVS, where your uh, where your Best Buys are, and then just buy the the cheap versions of the lights and and that that way you don't have to bring it with you. You can just go get it. Usually those are low priced to the point where you can either try and send them back via FedEx, or you could just kind of leave them in the hotel room and uh, and move to the next place do this all the time when I need something. This, the things like the capture cards and, and stuff like that, that's the stuff you want to bring with you. And then the little things you'll find in, in the city. Next question. Next question, Ian, from Douglas Carmichael. Could you see intelligent director or similar tools negatively affecting the entry-level job market for production professionals in the future? Go ahead, John. I don't think that's likely. You have to remember that Zoom is a giant company that's supporting corporations across America. Their primary market is large corporations, not production houses. So I don't think it'll directly impact production that much. Jesse? Um, I'm going to say this as delicately as possible. Uh, I, I, I've worked my whole career around producers who uh, embarrass themselves by uh, trying to convince the crew that because they have acquired a new piece of technology, they can finally start releasing entry-level people. Like when you get autofocus, they start saying that we, we no longer need a first AC, right? 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 And um, you always, absolutely always need entry-level people on your productions. You always have and you always will. 
guy? I I feel stuck between Jesse and Mitch right now. It's like, can you can you hold the water back? Can you, I don't know, but just to your point, there, there's nothing going to replace the human except the repetitive tasks. And that's where AI really, really shines. So consequently, to your producer, they're always going to be about the budget and they're always going to find the lowest common denominator. And it's always going to be in Atlanta or someplace that you're not, or you have to move to. Right. So consequently um, there's the economic challenge of this question is, will it negatively affect the entry-level job? Well, it doesn't mean the job doesn't need to get done, but the producer is going to make choices because of the ROI that he's going to get from whatever this video thing is, is, you know, supposed to get back from that, that production. So, um, I keep, I'm loving into this question because I think it really applies into our education and what are the new jobs in what used to be the future. And I think we're living in that future now. Mitchell, you have the final word. Uh, well, great. Uh, Sky has a good point there. I think it's, uh, here's the deal. Uh, I, my anecdote is that when I was much younger <clears throat> and we were using slide rules and I brought out the first uh, uh, calculator, um, I had a big fight on my hands. They said it was illegal to use that kind of a device in school. And as long as I understood the mathematics behind it, it wasn't so much of an issue. So I'll apply that same thing to uh, a uh, intelligent director. As long as you understand what a director's job is, it's okay to apply some automation to a repetitive task, but you must understand the basic theory behind it. So if you're gonna apply an AI or anything else to your, uh, your process of editing or shooting, uh, make sure you understand exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. Let's go to our next question. And it's from Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio, Texas. Is there any software or website that would allow someone using Zoom to check their video transmission? Something like Audio Hijack for video. Well, I assume, Bob, that uh, by this question, you're asking about how, how do you want to see what you're transmitting out? And the fallback that you get with video conferencing uh, software is going to give you a more flattering um, return than what you're sending out to the larger world. And in most cases, it's just giving you a reflection of it. That goes for video and for audio. So what you can do to check levels or your overall framing or the video perception is join a Zoom call twice uh, with another device and to either monitor it or set a record to it. And that'll give you a bit of a... Um, a bit of a view of what you're sending out. If you have a suspicion that there might be bandwidth limitations or interruptions, what you can do is use one of the cloud services to join the client, uh, maybe use a service like OBS and record and play back what that cloud has seen. And that'll give you uh, a little more of an objective about just what you're sending out into the wide world. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Tony Mobley again from Noonan, Georgia. I was invited to a wedding next Saturday, and I want to use this as a learning opportunity. What is the panel's recommendation? Mimo Live, Cinemaker, uh, was not asked to do anything, just want to learn from the experience. Go ahead, Dave. Well, Tony, are you streaming this thing? Are you just recording what's going on? Are you going to have access to running around and getting the key moments? Or are you going to be parked in your pew? Um, I've been to a lot of weddings where they tried to shoot things and they missed the big moment and all that sort of stuff. So I don't care how you go about it or what tech you use, you're going to learn a lot. And I'm going to channel Alex here a little bit because 
putting yourself out there to try something you've never done before is the best way to learn. And to have people come back to you and say, here's, here's what you learned from that, excellent. So go ahead, give it a shot. Doesn't matter, Cinemaker, whatever you're comfortable with. Mitchell? I think Dave's giving good advice, but here's the problem, Tony. The minute people see you taking notice, pulling out cameras, doing some kind of editing, anything, all your friends and all your relatives are now going to expect you to be their filmmaker for their wedding or special events. And you don't want to be in that position because that's an instant way to stop enjoying the event by having to deal with technicalities of shooting and looking through a lens and you're going to lose the experience. So by all means, just be very stealthy about it. If there's time for a little short story here, at my wedding, I had all kinds of crew people, all kinds of producers and people I'd worked with in the business. And I had no video. I had nobody shot video. I didn't shoot video. I have it all up here and the photographs from the official photographer, but I didn't need video to have a great time. So you want to step out of an event, sure, put a camera in front of your eye. If you want to be in the event, then put it all away. Always kind of... Uh teases me whenever I see people at concerts or whatever with their phones up, you know, and right next to the studio cameras, you know, but let's go to our next question. From David Brady in New York, New York. When stopping or starting Zoom camera with a current MacBook Pro being captured via Mag Magwell Capture Plus results in a flash of green before the signal locks up. E did or E didn't? I don't know. Thoughts? Jeffrey? Well, the first thing I would, might do is I'd talk, uh, contact uh, Majewell and see if there is an actual problem with the unit itself rather than anything. Because no matter how much you're troubleshooting, if the product is, is defective, then it doesn't make much of a difference. I've never seen that through Majewell. Uh, but the other the one thing that I would highly recommend with these uh, boxes is to go into the software settings because uh, you can download software for it and uh, change up some of the settings to because this goes up to 4K. So I would bring it down to like a 1080p or to kind of relieve the uh, the fact because uh, what it's trying to do is it's trying to reestablish that handshake audio video. So by switching it down to like 1080p or 720, depending on your meeting, you might not get, you might get less of that. And of course, if you're using the loop through on that box and you're hooked up to a TV, maybe unplug the TV and, and see if there's a difference in, uh, in the handshake. Next question. And a next question popping in from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. How have panelists dealt with the plastic port covers of the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K? It seems terribly difficult to manipulate cables that are plugged in. Got yeah, Jesse. Rip them out and launch them into the sun. You will never use them again once they are gone. If you want to do it delicately, get a small uh, fine tip screwdriver and remove that side panel. You have to be a little bit careful about the uh, XLR release tab. But once you get that panel off, you can tease them out very, very easily and you will never, ever, ever miss them. Good to know. Let's go to our next question. Next one in from Doug Moeller in Arlington, Texas. I just shot some video on my Blackmagic 6, 6K this morning. After I loaded the video into DaVinci, I was looking at the metadata and the time code was blank. What do I need to do to record time code in the video? And Mitchell. 
Um, if it didn't make it into the uh, the video from the from the get go, uh, a lot of editing systems don't absolutely require it. You can uh, you can lock things up with uh, with the audio, or you can just put it on the timeline and put the other camera shots uh, uh, you know consistent with it. It's not like it used to be when you had time code to keep uh, the drift from the cameras uh, interfering with the audio or other camera shots that were in sync. All right. Well, thank you for our producers for all of your fantastic questions about media and virtual production. We'll now be moving into our education hour, and I'll hand things off to John. Thanks, Josh. Our topic today for education hour is storytelling and education. We'll start with a general discussion from our panelists, and we're looking forward to seeing the journey that our producers send us on after that. It might become a practical discussion talking about how and when to use stories in the classroom or how to write good stories. It might become philosophical and discuss the art in general. It may even be a scientific conversation by describing the effect of stories on the human brain. The choice is yours, producers. Where will you take us? So I'll ask our panelists to please raise your hand on the uh, opening panel discussion question if you would like to contribute. Go ahead, Josh. Um, I, I see storytelling is having uh, tons of uh, of usage in education in general, but also for, for memory. Uh, oftentimes people will connect context around things as opposed to remembering facts all on their own. And so I think that um, involving story whenever you can will help the retention. Uh, it's, when you tell a story about something, it allows you to attach an emotional context to something as opposed to just a cold fact. And anything you attach emotional context to it your brain tends to hold on to longer. What do you think, Sky? I originally was a, a on stage and somebody else wrote the story and I was the puppet or the actor. And then I moved into, because I had to make a living in, in Los Angeles, I went into editing because I was excited about the Macintosh computer. And, and that was the first nonlinear editing tool. And I didn't get around to understanding the making of a story until I ran out of the ability to make a living. And consequently, I realized the equipment was no longer what was going to provide my, my sustenance. And so I realized that equipment was always going to be changing. And the manufacturer always had to sell you the next new thing because that was their job. And I realized I looked back in history and stories been around since humans have been around the campfire, telling each other, the bear came into the into the into the camp and we survived and that and what happened was people around the campfire would start as a community uh, telling the, the the facts of the way they saw them and then they realized that one person over in the corner was actually the person that was kind of the best at telling the tribes or the community's story that became the story the keeper of that story to the point that the way I heard it told anyway is when it was started to be written down that tribe story and then handed out they didn't like it at all because there was the context. And so I see, uh, I'm very curious about Jesse's comment about music being biological. I'm really want to want to explore that conversation, but I think the, the story and community is, has been around since humans. So that's my history of why I've moved into the need of understanding the structure of story and where does it fit into the human experience? Thanks. And Dr. Clark, what are your thoughts? Once upon a time, 
Ernest Hemingway was challenged to tell a complete story using only six words. He thought for a minute and then came up with this. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Now, I don't know what the effect of that listening to that short story had on you, but one thing I see in it is that it gets the audience involved in thinking about or visualizing what this story can mean or where it would lead or what's the backstory that led to this for sale ad. And I think that's a powerful use of stories in education. It gets something started, not so much that it finishes the conversation, but it begins a thinking process that the listeners can continue to mull over and go beyond the information given, which I think is a, a very powerful use of teaching or story in teaching. Aaron, how would you uh, respond to that question? So I really want to go back to what Josh had said about the memory concept of storytelling, because I think it's absolutely vital for the the concept of a story to stay in your memory, because a lot of students tend to have issues when they're connecting and they're trying to remember bits and pieces of information. But if there's no, <clears throat> excuse me, if there's no connection, then they're not going to remember it. So a little story that I can share is that I was teaching grammar and figurative language to my kids. And there were so many terms, hyperbole and automatopoeia and all these things that they can barely say, never mind remember what they mean. And I quickly told them a story about my seventh and eighth grade English teacher. And she was from the South and she had this beautiful accent. And every time she would say automatopoeia, she would clap out the syllables really, really quickly. So automatopoeia. So I did that for my kids. And now they remember what it is because they remember the clap being connected to automatopoeia. Very small story, but when you make that connection, it helps students remember that. And then later on down the line, they're able to make those connections. Great. Mark? So uh, telling stories or learning how to tell stories is vital to you no matter what your career is. In architecture, we have all these tools to tell clients what their buildings might look like in the future, but we resort to storytelling. We, use, we may use virtual walkthroughs, we may use renderings, but we're telling a story about how we're going to solve the issues that their user groups have and how we'll make them work better. In radio, we tell stories through commercials. We connect them emotionally and sometimes with some audio sound to get them to be top of mind. So learning how to tell stories well will do you justice for the for any career you choose. Couldn't agree more. Harshid? So I live in a place that is at sea level. And to go back to where I was born, it's about 3,000 above sea level. And the first film that I remember seeing in America was Lion King. And you think about that peak, you think about that peak maybe at Disney, and it's still it's telling a story, but it invokes emotions within a child, an adult, um, you know, 
and any any human that just might have any sort of emotions might just see, huh? There's this new animal that is you know trying to survive, or this uh, person is trying to teach their child about uh, what you might lose, what you might have, uh, what you might uh, want to gain. And having these little skills is not only going to teach you, you know, human skills, but it also teaches you geographic uh, instances. Uh, it teaches you a lot of culture because every element of weather might be different within different uh, countries. And, you know, you survive and it doesn't mean that if you live in one continent that you can't survive in another. And the hope of exploration and to say that there's more to life than just life that it is, you know, it gives that child that hope or dream to say, okay, well, I am interested in space and I want to go above and beyond what I may have learned in the past about geography. So I think it really gives inspiration to kids and the element that we need to learn at this point is how do we take that same hope that dream that story that i might have just said took you from sea level to three thousand above you know you might go visit this place it's victoria falls it's the seventh wonder of the world and alex and i usually talk about zimbabwe i'm always nudging him to say stories about it but it is a hope, it is a dream, but that's where I was born. So, you know, we could hopefully you could inspire others. Thanks, Rashid. Mm -hmm. And I can say that stories are an effective way to transmit information from one human to another. When you see facts and data and charts, it activates the language part of your brain. And when you hear a story, other parts get activated. Or I can tell you a story and say, one reason why we know that stories are an effective way to communicate information is because there was a scientist who was studying a, a monkey by plugging his, uh, scanning his brain with a functional MRI, which is a way to see what's happening in a live brain. He attached the electrodes to the monkey's head and had, gave the monkey a nut. And he observed to see what was happening to the monkey as that monkey was trying to open the nut and which parts of the brain were lighting up. And you see on the MRI, it, it becomes these bright flashes when the brain starts activating. And then the scientist took a break and went over and had his own nut. And what he didn't realize was happening was he was still monitoring the monkey's brain. And so as a scientist was trying to figure out how to open up the nut, he noticed that the MRI was flashing. And those same parts of that monkey's brain were flashing when he saw the scientist opening the nut as when the monkey was opening the nut. And he discovered something called a mirror neuron. And all primates have mirror neurons. And these mirror neurons are that monkey see, monkey do aspect where you see someone else doing something and you naturally want to learn how to do it. That's how human beings learn how to walk or talk is by observing and testing and trying. And all of life becomes this experimentation zone where that's how you truly learn is by activating multiple parts of your brain. And when you read a story, your parts of your brain get activated, like the sympathetic, um, the sympathy, sorry, not sympathetic nervous system is something different, like sympathy or empathy. And it causes you to really feel yourself in the story, which creates those long lasting connections between your neurons. One is a story and one is facts and figures. And one will stick with you hopefully past this morning and the other will likely not. Uh, what do you think, Tony? So oh, I, I, I approach this from a different perspective. Um, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that regardless to your faith, 
regardless to your religion, regardless to your sacred texts. It is all about telling the story. And when we, when we are sharing or ministering or preaching or whatever you want to call it in our particular houses of worship, what we are doing is telling that story that has already been told and we're telling it again and again and again. I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Sky? I, I'm just listening to, to Tony's absolute reality of that in that context. But I'm also listening to Aaron and talking about the, the context of when his story. And then I love that the neuroscience, John, that you brought to the, the, the fact. And what I'm realizing is it is a context, contextual thing. Everybody wants a silver bullet, right? We want the single pill to take and it's going to solve all the problems. But there are times when just a piece of instruction is all you need. And I don't need to know the origin and the history and, and, and the, the deep nuances of something. So while I love story, I, and I totally agree with both conversations here, I think there's a contextual element that we need to keep in mind. When is that tool uh, best used uh, in the situation? In the heat of battle, I don't need to have a debate. I need to be doing my job and, and you know, taking that hill. Absolutely. Dave? Oh, I'm really glad you brought mirror neurons into the discussion, John, because that was what I was going to talk about. And it really is how social regulation works. We see other people's behavior being rewarded and we lean toward being that way. It's how all societies that gather together in large numbers have to handle things. And storytelling is the cultural memory. Legends and myths survive because the lessons they contain, I don't know about witches in the woods, um, cats in the microwave, it, it's all part of the continuum of us understanding our world and constructing a reality. Um, McLuhan often talked about how you affect the environment. That's easy. The environment affects you. And when the environment affects us and we can't understand it, we have to build a story around it in order to tell someone else how that affected me. And as they talk about, you know, the fireside stories and the shaman who gives you a long answer to a simple question or the, the elders who don't answer the question but tell you a story, it, it's all part of that culture. Each culture has its own way of doing it. And we merge a lot of cultures in Canada, so we get a, exposed to all the different methods and techniques people use. Um, the mirror neuron thing is social regulation, and it's a discussion I've been having with people now for almost 10 years. Um, as a, and as a contrast to that, there's the assertive ignorance, so we'll get to that in a different discussion. And I like what Chris did with um, Hemingway's short story, because that is exactly what you're trying to do with movies written stories, any kind of mediated story, you're trying to make the audience imagine something and then carry the story forward. I, I think this discussion is amazing in terms of storytelling generally. Uh, but I wanted to highlight, you know, John, you put a link in the, um, um, the education design section in Discord, and it was for Jared Coney Horbath, who talks about how storytelling at a beginning of a class, excuse me, um, prepares people for the act of learning. They come to school to learn, 
they go to a class, they have to settle. And you get them all on the same page, and this is that social regulation again, by telling a little bit of a story about what was on the news today or what you saw out the car window when you drove to work today. And then the kids get into the bit, and then you go to the lesson information and, and link it to that. I didn't know I was using that technique until I watched his little eight-minute video about how that technique is useful to teachers. I've given lots of presentations in front of large groups, and I even did things for teachers uh, about multimedia. And I always use story. Virtually everything I told them was couched in a story. And I still do it today. I bore people to death with it. So anyway, Chris? In North America, when faculty members invite one another to a dinner or a party at their home, it's traditional to bring a bottle of wine or a, a bouquet of flowers as a centerpiece as a kind of gift to the host. In Israel, the custom is that when faculty members are invited to a party at someone's home, they're expected to bring two new stories. And that kind of guarantees that the evening is going to go well. People will take their turns and, and uh, parade out their stories, and, and the whole community will enrich its library of interesting, fresh stories. And I think it's important to also note that case studies are stories in education. Simulations are stories in education. They're just stories put to different contexts. And word problems are stories in education, the good ones. And so our producers, if you have questions about how we can use stories or how to write better stories, we invite you to put your questions into the Mukana chat. And uh, we'll have a lot of time today, it looks like, to discuss uh, storytelling in its various uh, forms. But what's our first question from our producers, Dave? Our first one comes from Bob Studevant in San Antonio. He's asking, will AI storming the education doors and getting better at storytelling and eventually cost, costing to use them, uh, having to pay a fee, how do we balance out the tools for everyone to use? Sky? I'm, I'm fascinated with David Holtz, the gentleman that's in charge of Mid-Journey. I got to listen to him in an office hours conversation that he does every Wednesday. He made the comment that if you are an illustrator, you are going to hate Mid-Journey, the creative art graphics tool. But if you are a storyteller, you're going to love it. And that's where I'm listening to this question and putting in the people that are architecting this new tool. And what I'm observing from David is that he's using the tool actually to embrace and connect community. And the art is almost its, its side function. So again, we are in a time of great change and it's, it's the repetitive, I mean, it's the, it's the rapidness of, of this change that I think is where the fear is coming from. So being an early adopter, I guess I'm embracing the cold water, but I can see where others like, you know, jacuzzi temperature. Aaron, what are your thoughts? So when I think about storytelling in the aspects of teaching, I think about the fact that AI can definitely aid in the concept of storytelling, but it can never take over the human aspect of it. So while AI can learn um, the different parts of a story and what the best way to 
engage your audiences. I don't think AI is going to be able to truly take over storytelling, but I think there's a bunch of great tools that AI has come up with recently that can help aid in it. The one that I'm putting into our chat right now is called Novel Effect, and it's when teachers want to do a read aloud of a story, whether it's a picture book, a chapter book, you turn it on and it starts to listen to what you're saying in your story, and it starts to create a soundtrack behind you to make you feel like you're even more part of the story. Because like we were talking about earlier, music is biological. You feel something different when you hear music with a story. And does it I do mean, it based off the, the words that you're saying, Erin? Like it will contextually yeah. create a scene? Wow. Yeah. So it'll pull in different um, types of music. And if you're... Um, if you're coming up to something a little bit scary, you can kind of hear the tension in the music. It's a really great website. Um, but I think that it's basic enough for all teachers to be able to, to use it. It's not something that you have to have a lot of equipment for. So to think about how much things are costing to use them, going back to the question, that's something that we can keep in mind. Like, how can we enhance a story using AI without taking away the human element? Awesome. Dr. Clark? Not every teacher is a great storyteller. And I think AI can help be act as a kind of professional development device for those of us who would like to become more succinct. I count myself in that group. Thank you. And Tony? Yeah, I, I look at it as a tool, and I think it's, it's a tool that, that can enrich the experience. And I'll give you an example. And I think a few weeks ago, I shared that I use uh, ChatGPT to, to write a sermon. And in writing, it did a good job of doing the sermon. But when I looked at it, it was kind of, um, it lacked spirit. It lacked emotion. Contextually, the themes were good. The What it expresses was good, but there was no soul or spirit in it. And I think this can be the same thing in education, that you look at it as a tool, as a resource, something to support where you're going uh, or what you want the students to learn and know. But it it does not have the, the essence, the spirit, or the soul to take the leap that, that most of us need in uh, a learning. Hmm. Dave? I'm going to riff on what Tony was just saying. There's um, um, a Hugo Award-winning fiction writer, science fiction writer named Frank Wu, and uh, he told the story of how he was working on his latest novel, and his problem is that he has trouble starting. Gee, that's normal for most writers. Uh, you got the idea, but how to start it? And he turned to ChatGPT and, and put in all the parameters that he wanted to deal with in his first chapter and asked it to write the first chapter. 
And when it spit out this nice little chapter, he read it through and he thought, well, it covered all the bases real nice, but it's not me. It, it's not the way I write. However, it gave him a framework from which to build and scaffolded him to the story that he eventually wrote. And I think this is part of that tool thing where if it allows you to externalize your process and then feed it back to you, you get to see what's better than what it did. And as a creative person, you're always striving for that. Uh, I often said that I became a better presenter on television after watching myself play back because I do and have mannerisms that uh, don't fit television and I've had to train by reflecting back. So I think chat GPT and, and other AI for education and that will help teachers to begin that preparation process and guide the process and over iterations, it'll be more and more supportive of what it is and the way you teach. Sky? Dave brought up the point about story block and we hear that and I, I just heard a rant on a podcast recently that says there really is no such thing it's because the reality of a film is that it a script of a narrative at least could potentially go into the hundreds of iterations and so to think you're going to write prose and in first first draft is is an aspiration that might not be a little a little true in reality. So consequently, giving yourself permission to get better, iterate, and and grow, I think that's where I, I think it has to be perfect to f right out of the pen. It's like, maybe not. Maybe this is your job, and you have to keep trying and doing it better. You're always going to, and again, art is never finished. You just run out of time or money. Isn't that the truth? And when we think of costing, decision makers really rely on ROI or return on investment. And as schools consider what the future of schools are like, I suspect it will involve a lot more investing in technologies like these so that they can have essentially more students per paid employee because humans are significantly more expensive than technology to employ. And as sad as that is, there's um, a whole different debate there, a whole different hour there, something to consider. Also, Emily Russo in our chat, she's a longtime panelist, said, uh, I disagree, Tony. Mega prompts can create the basis for a story that can help educators and students. AI is the recipe. It still needs a chef. So thank you, Emily. Good to hear from you today. What's our next question? Our next one's from Douglas Carmichael, who's asking, how can stories be used to teach life skills to those with disabilities? Erin? So the big thing that many of my teachers at my in my school use are social stories. So they're these very short stories, um, limited language with pictures that go along with it. I'm forgetting the name of the type of pictures that they typically are, but... They're very easy for students to understand whether they're able to read or not. And they're incredibly short. Like I pulled one up from a teacher and it says, sometimes I get mad and you see a picture of someone looking upset. Um, when I'm mad, sometimes I want to hit or kick another person. And you can see that in the picture. Um, but hitting and kicking make might make someone um, get hurt and that's not safe. So there's all these different layers that teachers can make with these types of stories. So it can teach them the steps that they need while connecting it to a story. And then they can also take those pictures and put them on um, a card or an iPad or 
even a teacher's lanyard, if it's something very basic that they need to remember and the students understand the life skills or the um, emotional regulation that they need to remember and the kids remember when they get told the story again. So in the moment that something, <clears throat> excuse me, might be happening, there might just be one picture that a teacher will use, but they will repeat the story <clears throat> So sorry, on a daily basis, so that the student makes those connections, so that they're able to remember and process it in their own way, whichever way they need to, in order to be successful. Yeah, and if anyone wants a specific example of what that might look like uh, for like general parents of children, um, and what I mean by that is just something all parents probably know is Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. A lot of that, uh, those cartoons are those social stories that Aaron's talking about, where you teach the child to put themselves in the story. Um, and it's useful for all children. And it's especially useful for children with special needs. I know my two boys uh, in the autism program are uh, frequently using those storytelling techniques. Dr. Clark? Earlier today, Mark Giuliani pointed out that um, becoming a good storyteller will be helpful in any profession or any part of your future life, regardless of your field. And I think that applies to Douglas Carmichael's question that um, a life skill that can be taught through storytelling is how to tell a good story, one that engages your audience, one that is short enough to um, retain their interest and memorable enough to get something started. So um, I think that's one of the ways in which storytelling can be used to teach the life skill of storytelling to those with disabilities. Thank you. What's our next question, Dave? Paul Terry in Austin, Texas is asking, can you talk about the ways that various social media platforms facilitate storytelling? Go ahead, Dave. Well, I would think that any medium uh, eventually gets used for storytelling. It's it's billboards. It's uh, TikTok is a storytelling medium with video. Um, when early uh, uh, BBS, uh, BBSs, I think the term is, bulletin board systems, uh, they quickly turned from the hard facts into storytelling. Uh, the Well is a community of people who just wanted to share all their stories and form community around those stories. We have lots of stories, and they come out every day. So the chance to share them with people is just that standard around the campfire community. We have a digital campfire now. Uh, we used to have a television campfire, and before that, a radio campfire. So it, it always is. People sit. I, I mean, heck, I watch hockey games, and it, there's a story in there. People wouldn't believe it, but there is. There's a story in each game, and you can recount that game really well with the story of how you observed it and, and went for. So I, I guess there isn't a medium or a platform or a, a technology that exists that isn't already employing uh, or being employed for storytelling. How would you use social media and storytelling, Sky? Well, I perceive social media as 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 to Dave's point, it's, it's the current version of the, the English pub. It's a place of gathering. People gather because they like each other. They want to hear each other. And then maybe at some point they put up a stage and a microphone and a light, but not everybody's a good teller of story or a good 
joke or person or, but maybe as a family, we, we want to give that family member an opportunity to, to, you know, practice their guitar or sing. You got to start somewhere. And if you're in a, in a close tight knit group of family, but again, as a platform, uh, yes, these various social media platforms are for me anyway, this new way of trying something out. Now, can we take the criticism and the critique and the joking and, and the, the, you know, the, the, the grumbles, um, well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger has been coming to put in my mind, but, uh, it's, it's a big platform that you're, you're jumping on when you're going on some of these now digital social media versions. Yeah. And what is social media, if not just telling your own story to the public and our first social media cave paintings, were telling stories as well, Dave. Yeah, and I was I was going to go to the sort of democratization of technologies that they're simpler. They're in our pocket now. You don't have to have a TV studio to do television. You don't need radio stations. Sorry, Mark. Uh, you don't need radio stations to tell stories over the air to lots of people. But uh, the book used to be difficult to produce, and it was uh, you know printing things on paper needed somebody to make the et cetera, et cetera. I think the way social media are facilitating storytelling is the immediacy of it. A person is having an experience, they're trying to integrate it, and so they tell a story around it and share it with all the people that are following them, and then they get that satisfaction of having integrated it. I don't know if people who spend a lot of time watching YouTube absorb everything they see, but a good storyteller will pop out of the crowd and become a person that people want to follow because of the way they tell a story or because the kind of stories they're telling are very compelling and very relatable. They're part of our cultural heritage. And all of that is what makes storytelling work. Not necessarily the, the medium is the message, but the storytelling still is the content. And Sky. I heard a director talk about the Marvel comics. It's a lot of really good fireworks, but very thin on emotional and, and, and storytelling, at least some of the scripting that it was, that was his opinion. And I realized I've been to four fireworks shows that were, you know, 45 minutes long. And after about the first 10 minutes, it's like, Oh, look, something blowing up again, bang. And you, and so that, that rise and fall action, uh, the rhythm and meter of, of, a story, a joke, uh, following, following your hero. Uh, we need to keep those concepts in mind. And that comes from practice and learning. What are the tools of beginning, middle, end? What's your story arc? And we haven't even really gotten into the nuts and bolts of the geekery of telling what, it, what is a story. Thank you, Sky. Next question. It comes from Douglas Carmichael. Could storytelling be used to help new parents learn how to parent? and teach parents how to be more nurturing parents. Erin? Oh my goodness, absolutely. Storytelling to help new parents or really anybody. It's all a part about, from the way I read this, is the best way to do this is to become parts of communities of new parents, of veteran parents who are willing to share their insights with you. I think the best way that we as humans are able to learn from each other is the best because you're able to use other people's situations and what they've gone through 
and figure out, oh, hey, maybe I shouldn't do that. Or, oh, that was an amazing idea. I need to use that. So storytelling is a great way for humans to make those connections, whether you're a parent or whomever. Learning something new that you haven't done before, it's great to go to somebody who's already done it in order to gain their wisdom and insight. Thanks, Aaron. And I'll add that I think as far as the the end of that question, to be more nurturing, you become nurturing by nurturing. That's a verb. It doesn't happen in your head. It happens in your hand. So I think it can help give you the framework, uh, but it does need some practical application of that lesson. Next question. From Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio, has there been a study comparing storytelling using audio and audio with video? Is it better for the student to imagine their own images? Dr. Clark. Yes. Uh, There hasn't been a study to my knowledge, but uh, I've had experience with both of the conditions that Bob Sturdivant uh, poses. Um, My thought is that uh, with, uh, with visuals or without visuals produces different results. It's not that one is necessarily better than the other. It depends on what you're uh, privileging or what you're hoping for. Um, Years ago, I wrote a children's story that was not illustrated and uh, spoke that children's story at various uh, school, elementary school assemblies when I was living in East Lansing, Michigan. And uh, it occurred to me the second or third time that I did this recitation that um, I should prepare the students by asking them to keep track of the images that come up in their imaginations as they listen to the story and then share that image information with me um, because I was looking for an illustrator and uh, I thought that maybe some of their ideas for what these illustrations would look like would be helpful. And uh, it made it seemed to make a, a difference to the story uh, to the uh, students. They were uh, much more individually engaged, I think, as they were imagining and then uh, attempting to remember their version of the images that would go with different parts of the story. So, if what you're involved, if what you're prizing is engagement then uh, invite your audience to visualize and uh, prepare to repeat to me, in this case, uh, what it was that they saw in their imagination. Um, If what you're after is uh, literal memory for the text of the story, uh, it might be helpful to provide a common set of images uh, that um, would support remembering the text that goes with these images. Thank you. And that reflection practice also reinforces those same neural pathways that um, cause you to remember stuff longer. Aaron. So Chris, I'm a little, I, I might have to push back just a little bit on your previous answer, because when I talk to my students about books versus movies, I always tell them that the book is always better There has never been a book I have read that I have watched the movie of after that I've said, oh my gosh, the movie was so much better than the book. 
It has never happened. So while people that make movies are incredibly great at taking a story and making it as dynamic as they can for two, three hours, your imagination still is the best, the best visualizer. The way that you see things is going to be probably different than what the author had in mind, but that's what you're going to remember. Like when I was reading Harry Potter, I remember so much more the way that my mind came up with all these different ideas. But when they showed me it in the movie, I was sometimes let down a little bit like, ooh, I thought this was going to be different because a movie can't recreate what's in someone's imagination perfectly. It can to a certain point. The only thing I would say to this question, though, is for younger students who don't have, excuse me, that background knowledge about a specific setting or about something specific, you would want to put visuals with the audio. But if it's a typical, like realistic fiction type of story, I think it's better to let the kids come up with their own ideas for what they see, because that's what they're going to remember. Thank you, Aaron. And I do know that there's significant evidence um, that shows that learners who receive information using two channels retain more information than receiving it via one. And you want to make sure neither channel and the channel would be audio and visual in this case. You want to make sure neither oversteps the other or distracts from the other, but they're both subtle and they aid each other that can aid in learner retention over time. Dave? I've always believed that it is important for the student to imagine their own images and not for me to plant them in their head. Uh, I can suggest a situation or whatever and let them create the characterizations. But I also wanted to remind Bob that a lot of storytelling was done with silent movies, uh, radio dramas, and with the spoken word books. And spoken word books are coming back into popularity because of people's time constraints, but you can evoke a lot of images just with the words and leave it up to the reader or listener. And in the case of silent movies, you can imagine the dialogue instead of having it told to you. You can imagine what people might say to each other and remember it better because your brain invented it. Thanks, Dave. Tony? I just wanted to say that the very best storytelling for me is the sermon. And when the sermon is done well, the story has been really told. And I just wanted to share that. Thank you, Sky. I was so wanting to not talk, but Aaron, you lit me up. I love the the, the phrase pushback. Somebody challenged me on saying, uh, how about if we we redirect from my my perspective? So there's there's a concept. Also, when you said um the the, the and I'm going to say it's a myth that the, the book is is always better than than the film. And when I started making and being responsible for making a film, I, somebody said, does this technique, this edit, this whatever effect that we're putting in this film move the story forward or does it distract the audience's brain just because you spend a lot of money on it doesn't mean it moved the story. For, and so we're a servant to the story and that as the creator that's the challenge. And, and recently, Aaron, I was um, C.S. Forrester uh, Hornblower series, and I listened to all of the podcast, I mean, all of the audible books on, on 
Horatio Hornblower, and it was fascinating. And then I watched it on television on a BBC, very nicely, well produced. And I'm what I, I was trying to figure out contextually what was I missing, and it was the inner monologue of the hero and the struggle of his journey and and the conflicts that he was facing and the solutions that he was coming up with. And so that's where I was challenging myself is to recognize visually we're giving the responsibility over to a director, a film crew, a production company to entertain us versus a book is is a, a, a challenge in our own imagination. And so the that's where I continue to go back to what is the context rather than the comparison of this is always better. It's just, it's a different experience. So how to embrace the book as the gift of the author saying, yeah, come on, let's go on a journey together versus, oh my goodness, look what that production crew did for me. And I get to sit in the, you know, the, the, the amazing 3d world of something. And I have to, you know, sit and smell and eat a lot of popcorn. Thanks. And Emily did post an article, a journal article in the chat regarding retention in audio versus text-based information transfer. Next question. This one comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Which element of a story, theme, people, maybe character, setting, viewpoint, plot, conflict, or the resolution, not HD or 4K, is most important in teaching? Aaron? It really depends on the age that you're teaching. For third graders, it's very important for them to understand the characters, the setting, the viewpoint, the plot, the conflict, and the solution. And then as they go through third grade and up, then I think the theme should be or is the most important part of a story because that's what you're going to take away from the story in the end. Because a year from now, you might not remember the names of the characters or where it took place, but you'll remember the theme. Dr. Clark. I agree with Aaron, and uh, I would say that it, it varies with your audience and, and their background knowledge. Um, the more familiar your audience is with the theme or the setting, for example, uh, the less effort the storyteller needs to put into supplying that. So... In a sense, it's a it's a matter of tuning the version of the story that you tell to match or to complement to build on your audience's expected uh, background knowledge. So each each telling and retelling of a story, I think, uh, can be and should be adjusted to uh, what you know, what you believe about the audience and what they bring to the table. Thank you, Chris. Next question. This is from Sky Gleason, who's on the panel today. He's in Seattle, Washington. Who has used Blake Snyder Save the Cat book for a story or the book Story by Robert McKee? Sky? As I was getting out of the technology of being a part of the machine, making films and TV, et cetera, this, these were two sources that I was given as if you want to learn how to make a film at least. And that was uh, as I continue to research, what are the nuts and bolts of the original concept 
before it ever gets to a camera, before it ever gets to a director, it's, it's somebody has to write that thing down and, and then it changes and modifies. I've heard once that there are three films that you make the one you write, the one you edit, sorry, the one you write, the one you make, and then the one you edit, because each of those iterative processes, different forces are at, 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 uh, at, investment right there and choices are being made along the way because the sun sets and, or you run out of, you know, film or something. So your batteries runs out and then you get in the room in the edit suite. And it's just, boy, those two elements just don't fit together. Like it, it look good on paper. So I'm curious if, if these are concepts or, or other, what other resources people have used to understand the story element. Thanks guy. I've going to add those to my reading list. <laughs> <laughs> I have not heard of those, but I'm looking forward to those. What's our next question? Uh, Paul Terry from Austin, Texas. Uh, how do you tell your life story? How do you tell it, Dave? One day at a time, I guess is the short answer. Um, I uh, uh, subscribe to the notion that our brains are constructing our reality all the time. Every new day you wake up, new things Familiar things mostly, but new things occur. And then you have to integrate it into your story. Everybody has one. Uh, Carl Jung is famous for saying everybody has the same one. Uh, and that it manifests in all the different cultural expressions that we have. Uh, the life story of a single person can be related to if they're competent enough to be able to write in a way other people are interested in. Uh, but I've often joked that my life would be so much more interesting with editing. <laughs> Me too. Chris? Well, I think that the way one tells a life story uh, depends on the audience again. Uh, in a way, your life, the telling, the first telling of your life story is to an audience of yourself. You're making sense of your experiences and you emphasize the uh, the good parts and I think you leave out some of the chapters and episodes that um, you're not so pleased with or that are more difficult to integrate into the presentation of self that you're hoping to uh, impress on other people but then it depends on whether there's an additional audience or am I writing my life story for an audience of my grandchildren or great-grandchildren yet to be born, that, that gives a different uh, editorial nudge to me as to what I emphasize and what I leave out. Um, also, I think it needs to be short. It needs to uh, leave uh, opportunity for questions and requests for elaboration because um, it's... A, a long shaggy dog version of my life story and then and then and then and then is uh is going to lose my audience uh, pretty quickly but one that's um intriguingly brief can lead to a conversation uh, with the audience even even if it's an imagined conversation so i think uh telling your life story the first step is to write a first draft for yourself and ask yourself if it if it holds up 
and then try it out with another audience outside your yourself and see what their response is, whether it raises questions or, and it could be an audience who know a version of your life story already, a spouse, for example, who's been with you for many years and yet has a different uh, viewpoint about what the highlights are and what the, what the things that are better left unsaid might be. Thank you. What's our next question? From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we have, how can educators use media to add story and to otherwise drive facts and figures? Aaron? Thinking about this question, it just made me think about all the things that I teach on a daily basis. And there's a great way to add stories to everything from grammar and reading to science. Um, one of the best ways to do it, like in grammar, is to teach them all the different parts of speech and then have them make a story themselves based on what types of words that they used. But thinking about how we have to make all of our content that we teach connected to real life situations, I think there's a very easy way. Just show how what you're teaching is going to be used in the real world. How is it going to be used in real life? When I was teaching science remotely, I was taking my iPhone outside and showing the kids the different types of plants and the roots and the stems and the leaves. There's always a way to connect media if you can connect it to real life situations and therefore it'll be more memorable for kids. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, that's a, some great advice, Aaron. Nice to hear what your practical uses are. I was thinking of uh, some of the applications of the most driest of facts, and let's say a spreadsheet full of facts and numbers of figures, right? So one, one thing we can do is we can graph it. And what that tells you is, what is this a part of? Where did this come from? Uh, where, where is it going? Um, what is the problem? that we're trying to solve? Where does this fit in to the other uh, aspects of what I'm teaching? So I think those type of uh, adding the story or context onto it could be helpful. Tony? Yeah, I just, I just wanted to add a little wrinkle in it and from the standpoint of, uh, I look at the way in which children and students play video games. And if we are able to give them directives to play interactive games, following the rules that they need to follow, but be able to create the characters the same way they do in video games and, and use that to allow them to tell a story that is part of their creative experience. I think that that's just another way to look at uh, using media. Thanks, Sony. Next question. David Brady from New York City, New York. While storytelling can be good, what are the consequences of conflating the stories being told and real life? Do you think AI and virtual immersive reality will contribute to this potential pitfall? Sky, I appreciate that Tony mentioned he's starting to use it for his his storytelling his his time that he speaks to his people his his group of people his people group and consequently, as if 
the information is a collective of the human experience or visual for mid-journey or for audible for chat GBT, uh, I mean, uh, textual, I'm, I'm thinking it's just bringing all of that thought together faster. Now, to Tony's point, it didn't have the spirit of what he wanted to say. So he needed to put his touch on it. So consequently, to think the first draft right out of the AI you know, voice is, is the absolute, I think that's where the, the pitfall is going to be, is because we as humans are inherently lazy and we just want the easiest, quickest, first silver bullet. And it's like, no, this is a tool to get us started, but the, the real value is in what is your voice and these, this is tool is helping you find that voice or excite your memory faster. Great. Next question. This is from Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. The best storytellers for me seem to manage to create a good environment within which their story can be well received. What are some techniques that can be used to help do that, to maximize the effectiveness and make it more memorable? Aaron? Basically, the three letters that I think of to make something more memorable and stay in someone's mind longer is visual, audio, and kinesthetic. So when you're moving, when you're seeing something, and when you're hearing something. So whether it's the storyteller doing the movements, as well as telling the story and the students can see and hear them, or the students becoming part of this, the story themselves, moving so that they can remember things. Anytime we move, we tend to remember things that we're doing while we're moving. Mark? So um, there's a gentleman named Roy Williams who's written a number of books on storytelling and radio advertising. And I just wanted to read a section from it because it pertains to this question. The most irresistible word in the English language has only three letters. The most powerful of all words is you. You engages the imagination of the listener. It puts the action of your spot in present tense, active, skillful use of the word you, makes a listener a participant in your ad. And then he gives a 60-second example. I'll just read part of it. You're standing in the snow, five and one-half miles above sea level, gazing at a horizon hundreds of miles away. Life here is very simple. You live or you die. No compromises, no whining, no second chances. This is a place constantly ravaged by wind and storm, where every ragged breath is an accomplishment. You stand on the uppermost pinnacle of the earth, this is the mountain they call Everest. Yesterday, it was considered unbeatable, but that was yesterday. As Edmund Hillary surveyed the horizon from the peak of the Mount Everest, he monitored the time on a wristwatch that had been specifically designed to withstand the fury of the world's most angry mountain. Rolex believed Sir Edmund would conquer the mountain, and especially for him created the Rolex Explorer. It goes on, but it kind of gives you an example of the power of that word. Yeah, that's a good example. Dave? I'm sorry, next question. Douglas Carmichael is asking, one of the parts of society that people welcomed the return of was large-scale concerts, sports, and theater. Is there a point where the scale, magnitude of production, eclipses the message and story being told? Are we emphasizing the wrong things? Dave? I'm going to say that we were missing the experience. So being sort of confined a little bit or distancing from other people or not being able to gather in our community made us realize how much we rely on that contact and those experiences. So I don't think it's so much about the story being told. Uh, you go to a concert, you're, 
you're enjoying the music, you're familiar with the performer because you bought the ticket, and you have an experience with all these other people, and you take that with you when the whole thing is over. Whether it is a story or just a moment in your story uh, is probably you know, something we could debate all day. But um, I don't think the scale of it has any impact on whether or not it's part of your story. Thank you very much, Dave. And what a great conversation we had today about the art of storytelling. I'm sorry we weren't able to get to everyone's questions, but they'll be pushed back to your notes section. Debbie asked at a different office hour. Like every day, office hours would not be possible without an amazing cast of characters. It begins with our crew behind the scenes. These volunteers create the setting of our story by ensuring everything runs smoothly before, during, and after the show. If you would like to volunteer, check out our daily email for a link to sign up. And our protagonists, the producers, create the plot by providing questions. Thank you for your thoughtful queries today. And finally, our panel. They play the part of our trusty sidekicks and sages who support our producers on their heroes' journeys. Thank you all, because our story would be incomplete without your time and attention. I'm going to ask our viewers to please stay tuned through the credits to see the, the large group of people it takes to run this show. Today, our Tlaloc Traversal shows that our questions ran 58,428 miles, or approximately 528 million bananas. And in case anyone was wondering, that's not quite enough to fill up a banana shipping ship. Uh, thank you all. We'll see you next week when we discuss uh, what's next week, Dave. You got me there. <laughs> well, you can find it on our daily email, and that should be coming out later this week. Thanks, all. Isn't the most important thing? <laughs> Isn't the most important figure of the traversal two point three times around the Earth? We all have an Earth. It's the same unit of measurement. No translation needed. Best story arc is Beverly Hillbilly's opening song. In under 30 seconds, it's the complete structure of, of a story. It's awesome. And I saw Aaron, there was an Aaron sighting. Loved it. It's been a long time. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Good job. Thank you, John. Thanks all. Great show.